Welcome to Nature Revisited. A few years ago, I made the film Negotiating with Nature. And Nature Revisited, the podcast, is a direct result of that film. I wanted to continue to promote the idea that we are nature and that our relationship with the natural world is the most important relationship we have. Recently, while screening the film at Williams College, I closed my eyes and just listened. After all, how many times have I seen the film? And what struck me was that the voices, the ideas expressed in the film, seem to stand on their own. Over the course of the year, I have encouraged my Nature Revisited listeners to watch Negotiating with Nature on my website. But after Williams College, I decided that instead of trying to bring my listeners to the film, I would bring the film to my listeners. This may be the first full-length film featured on a podcast. Here then is Negotiating with Nature in its entirety in two parts. I hope you enjoy it. someone who has spent some 25 years in my garden, I have come to realize that the earth itself is a garden and that we need all the help we can get caring for it. So I decided to leave my garden for a while and set out to see if I could find some folks who could help us. is all around us. It's what sustains us all. It's really the source of all life, of our inspiration. It really is the world that guides and nourishes us. Nature is literally, inherently, what we depend on. Southern Red Oak was a place where we met. I remember this tangle of sparkleberry that had rabbit-like paths through it. The place we all kind of respected and revered was there's this wonderful bowl. A pack of rowdy boys who had reverence for nothing, but we kind of come over the ridge and into the sing and see that kind of the absence glow of the light from these beech leaves and coming in there, and we just felt a sense of hush. When we grew up, parents just opened the door and said, be back in time for dinner. We went out and we played in the woods. We played in the natural areas. There was plenty of nature near where we lived, and we developed a relationship with nature that a lot of kids nowadays just don't have. I spent my whole childhood growing up on an orchard 
from the age of 10 or so, working with my father pruning and working in the apple, peach, and pear trees. Another part of it, which seems to come out of another century, is that there was an old hermit named Bill Andrus who had been married once for a week and he couldn't quite see his way through to a second week, so he moved to a barn. You know, he grew 95% of what he ate. And every week or two, my brother John and I would go to visit him and he would show us what he was growing. He'd take us into the woods and show us where squirrels had built nests up in the trees. The line between pure nature and Bill Andrus was very unclear. When I remember my early memories of growing up on Goodfellow Road and we'd go up to the top of the hill and the Goodfellows lived up there, Tom and his sister Etta, it was just a way of living that was so connected to, to nature and to the earth, in fact. They grew all their vegetables. They had the outhouse. They didn't have any running water. And they tapped the maple trees. They were constantly using nature's bounty for their life. And most of us would get nature's bounty from the store, and yet they got it from the land. I remember Tom walking those hills. Every time I went up there, I'd see him walking. He'd be walking those fields, and he always had projects that I'm sure he knew what they were, what he was doing, but he knew every inch of that land, like the back of his hand. I think of Tom Goodfellow as very grounded, very, very connected to every detail of everything that happened on his land. And I think about him because I really, in a way, envy that connection to the everyday life with the natural world, and most of us are pretty disconnected. People like Tom Goodfellow and Bill Andrews really open a door into a timeless way of living that I really think we yearn for. We've always sent our children to school for an intellectual education, and connecting to nature has been disconnected from that intellectual process so that if young people aren't getting this relationship building skill set at home, either with their parents or at camp or through a neighbor, they're not going to get it at school. When one parent was at home, it was easier to turn the kids loose outside. And maybe it was as simple as the backyard or a brook at the end of the road or even just a wooded lot. Children are primarily now having structured experiences inside. I've been teaching 36 years at the University of Delaware. I've seen a lot of classes come and go. And looking over that time span, I, I can say that the ecological IQ of incoming students is getting lower and lower and lower because they've grown up in a world where they've had no exposure to nature. They've had very little opportunity to go out and teach themselves. We have not focused in our educational system, even at the, the higher level colleges, on what we call the taxonomies. You know, what is this plant? What is this insect? What is this, this snake? So now we're turning out college students who know nothing about the animals they're supposedly studying. They don't know the natural history. And of course, that's what generates the interesting questions. You know what's not taught in college anymore? Botany. 
That used to be a very important piece of a humanitarian education, that you know trees, you know how trees work, you know what their names are, you know what plants work with other plants. Nobody knows that. They barely know basic trees that are around them. I think most people don't. Botany should be taught to fourth graders. Today's cultures all over the world really are almost totally disconnected from the natural world. We've created these artificial systems. People think that they get their food from the store, they get their water from the tap. So as we develop more and more and more, we're destroying those aspects of the world, and uh, it's a huge problem, and very few people appreciate that. There are a lot of different consequences of humans sort of disconnect from the importance of a healthy environment in our lives. Those people who grow up to have a passion for the earth were those that had meaningful experiences outdoors when they were children. Today we're facing the electronic revolution. Our kids are spending enormous amounts of time looking at their phones, texting, Facebooking, all the things that they do. It requires electricity. They're not doing that outside. So they are very well informed electronically, but that has become a huge barrier. There are no plugs outside. You can't recharge. The thing that is interesting to them, the video games, all the things, it's, it's always presented electronically. The inherent interest that I think kids are born with is eroded away. In a lot of senses, in the last 50 years or so, we have broken with nature. We felt like it was our right to do so. And the attitude is, you know, nature's for us to do with what we want and, and exploit what we want. And now I think there's a great sense of what they've lost from not being connected to nature. The fact that you can live with nature or against it are two different dichotomies that we have to settle on and sort of reconfigure before it's all lost. One of the things that just puzzles me is, again, how rapidly humans have gotten so isolated with everything that supports us. Certainly the impact of technology, certainly a trend toward urbanization. We're sort of in a crisis of our own soul. Uh, it's important that we're connected to nature because nature is what keeps us alive on this planet. A lot of people think that nature is nice, we can visit it, it's pretty, but we don't really need it. If it disappears, we can watch it on Channel 12 and, and it'll be okay. That is so far from the truth, it's, it's actually a little scary. Uh, so nature is absolutely essential. We are part of it, we're products of nature. We can't exist in isolation of nature. Deficit disorder is a term coined by my friend and colleague, Richard Louvre. It's really a description of changes, changes in society. The change in, again, human relationships to the natural world, where people literally do not have much experience outdoors in any number of ways, with, with nature as an integral or a healthy part of their everyday lives. So deficit means we're without it.
We're without nature. We're without an appreciation of nature's role, the many benefits that come to us. There's a huge effort to reconnect children with nature. I would like to expand that, reconnect their parents as well. The only reason the children are disconnected is because the parents don't see the value in it. Kids are the future stewards of the planet. If they don't realize stewardship of nature is important, they're going to be lousy stewards. So they're copying us. Right now, we are not, we're not very good stewards. We need to, to be better role models. I think worse yet, and I think what's most disturbing for me, is that I think there's a rising level of fear of the natural world. Children don't play outdoors very much. People are afraid to let them go on their own to explore the woods or a park or something like that. The news we get about nature is, is often negative. We've demonized it. It's a dangerous place, and we better not go outside, or, or something's going to, to eat us or kill us. The positives of being in nature far outweigh the negatives, and we don't hear much about that. We live in a post-wild world. The world I live in is very different than the environment I grew up in. My son's uh, experience of nature and wild is very different than mine was. I mean, I had a suburban home that bordered this just huge, immense forest. Now, when I want to explain to my four-year-old, you know, what happens with a monarch butterfly or, or what happens something in nature, we go to YouTube. I think we're fragmented in so many ways. You know, and I think we are separated and fragmented from nature, from each other, from our families. I think we're very cut off. And fear is a big part of that. There's a lot in our culture that creates and supports a fear of nature. Heaven forbid you should have a piece of that in yourself. There's a phrase that was coined by a scholar by the name of Peter Kahn, and he worries about what he calls environmental generational amnesia. If a child sees something like a polluted stream or a degraded environment with very little biodiversity and thinks that's what it is and will always be, having never had the memory of what it was before, then we're creating a situation where children don't know that there is a richness that's at risk. How do you tell someone they need what they don't know? I mean, let's say they've really grown up in an inner city with, you know, the only nature they see is in movies. I think it's very hard to be a human being without some connection to nature. I, th I see it as a source. And I'm careful when I say that because there's another generation coming up that doesn't have access to this. I'm conscious that, you know, they have to get their sense of humanity in other places. So it's not about whether we can or can't have a relationship. It's much more an issue of do we understand who and what we really are, or are we going to try and ignore it or avoid the responsibility that comes with being a part of nature? Nature is an idea. Nature is not reality. Nature is an idea that helps society do what it wants to do. Nature is a false construct that allows people to separate themselves 
from things they're connected to. And the reason for that disconnect is so you can have a hierarchical relationship with it. You cannot abuse something that's a part of you. But if you can convince yourself that you're separate from it and above it and better than it, you can sell it, you can waste it, you can abuse it, or you can ignore it. But you have to create other to create control. We start out by trying to learn from nature that there is a wisdom and a vision that we've lost sight of because we created this false separation. And when we start learning the lessons back, then we start understanding we are nature and nature is us. I think people are confused. We were all being led to believe that we were going to save nature. What we're talking about is saving ourselves by working with nature. And that's a completely different challenge. people are moving into urban centers. Having a healthy relationship with nature should be a part of who we are, both individually and collectively. Now, it's a great pity that in the 20th and the 21st centuries, so much concrete has been plastered over the world. People have moved into great urban centers and increasingly, generations have lost touch with the natural world. And so public spaces with gardens become vital. Walking through New York recently, I walked through Central Park, and it just struck me as a miracle that we would have a place like Central Park where there would be flower beds and trees and lots of green space. I grew up in New York City, and um, my mother would take me to Central Park pretty much every day which is a beautiful park. It's a nine-mile park. And, you know, we would sit. She would sit and read, and I would, you know, dig up worms and try and bring the worms home. There's a conscious effort on the part of people to start designing, growing things into our urban landscapes. And a perfect example of that is the High Line in, in New York City. People have figured out a way to design what was once a, a transportation system into a, a wonderful contact for humans in the city with living plants and soil. So the High Line is a wonderful example of this adaptation of our cities and our designs in our cities to start bringing plants into the city. It's no longer a concrete jungle, it's becoming a green jungle. to the High Line in New York City. Mary and I were there, and what we saw was, was nothing short of a miracle. That is that young people, old people, babies, teenagers, 25-year-old high-powered professionals, you know, you could, everybody 
across the whole socioeconomic range in New York City was walking in the High Line, looking at each other, smiling, talking, sitting, sunbathing. It's narrow, it's enclosed. Its design is unself-conscious, it's approachable and easy to understand, and you feel that you are sharing something when you walk the High Line. I walked the High Line, and I enjoyed it. I went to Central Park, I went to Prospect Park. We want to make sure they have that unique experience, because with me, it stayed with me for a lifetime, and I'm sure if we do it right, it will stay with those next generations for a lifetime as well. So to me, memory of place, sense of place, authenticity, all those things are vitally important to what we call really creating that unique experience. We need parks, it makes us feel alive. It gives us that sense of place. It gives us a place where our brains can just relax and take a break and enjoy the natural beauty. So as we urbanize, uh, we constantly hear, if you're gonna put more density, you must put more open space. No park could ever be too successful. The High Line, no question, is successful. It is not only a park that provides placemaking, but it also provides spacemaking. You're traveling through space, through buildings. And as I watch people walk down this park and enjoy the beautiful space, whether it's the sculpture or the gardens, it's the views. There are so many places you can take a picture and experience it brand new for the first time that, to me, that's part of the charm that you have international tourists, you have New Yorkers, you have others just coming there and just enjoying this incredible park. It's transformed the district. It's taken this old abandoned railroad and converted into one of the world's best parks. So it's absolutely a success. And to me, you cannot be successful enough. How do we take the small areas in urban in suburban sites that we have to guard now. I mean, I think that is now the front lines of nature. The battle for nature, I think, is less, at least for me, not the Amazon rainforests or the Alaskan wilderness. It's really our backyards, our medians, the DOT right-of-ways. I don't think we think about those areas as being gardens, but they're totally controlled by us. They're totally altered by us. I think the metaphor of gardening is really, really relevant because it implies a stewardship it implies a sense of care. And the High Line is the most visited attraction in New York City now. I mean, by far more than the Statue of Liberty or Bryce State Building. That drive is this wild looking space that floats between the skyscrapers. I think part of the appeal is the, the evocation of wildness that it provides in such an urban area. that gardens become necessary in the same way that poems are necessary or paintings are necessary because these are places where experience is shaped and where we can get back in touch with our most private selves and also with our natural selves. We are creatures of nature, but a huge part of our awareness of the environment that we live in is generated by our contact with the natural world. In New York City, we have 29,000 acres of parkland, but 10,000 acres are natural areas. And we're trying to bring more attention to those natural areas throughout our city, whether it's the wetlands out in various parts, and whether it's in the Bronx. Enough people aren't aware 
of the natural environment. When we take certain people to these locations or show them pictures, the first thing they'll say is, that's not New York City. When we came out of the post-industrial era, many of the places in New York City and probably in many of the industrial cities were untouchable. They were manufacturing. They were near the waterfront. They were brownfield site and they were contaminated. And over the past two decades, you're seeing these lands restored and healed where they're cleaned up and now they're brought back into the city. And we've converted those into these beautiful, incredible green spaces, whether it's Riverside South, Brooklyn Bridge Park. There are numerous parks where we've now taken these contaminated, damaged sites and now created these incredible parks. And I, I love the phrase healing because that's exactly what we're doing. We're healing the land and we're turning it back into incredible natural resources for the public to enjoy. I think there will be a renaissance of horticulture in the future. And I think that's gonna have to happen because almost any solution for the city that we're gonna have to have, all these spaces left over in cities, are gonna require plants to do it. The American idea of nature is highly romanticized, but the problem with that is that it views nature as something far away from us, not as something that's here. It's nature exists out there in some national park, out there, but here in the city, it's not nature. If the piece of land is not some pristine redwood forest, then to us it's not nature. And the first step in kind of getting beyond that, the first step in really addressing some of the environmental problems of our cities is to understand that nature's all around us, that our cities are nature. We have a different generation that understands nature and the environment very differently. When we work with young children, we have a lot of programs where they can help plant trees or plant flowers. It makes them feel very connected with nature and you can see the glow in their eyes. They're not gonna forget that. If we wanna have a healthy city, if we wanna have a healthy natural environment, healthy parks, we've got to maintain our parks, but more importantly, we have to start caring for our parks. To me, caring for our natural resources comes from a different part of the soul. It's not just going through a checklist. As we see more and more development, the natural landscape provides so many benefits to how we're going to grow. We have got to learn how to respect and retain the quality of our natural resources. Otherwise, it's gonna take decades to restore it. We humans are connected to the welfare of the planet uh, because we are products of the welfare of the planet. It is nature that created us. It's nature that we depend on. We cannot exist in isolation of nature. Even though it looks like we can, we go and we go to Manhattan and everybody seems happy. They're happy because they're getting their water from the Catskills. They're getting them food from all over the world. They're not getting what they need to live from Manhattan. Now the Manhattan Island used to be a wonderful productive ecosystem way back when. Now it's a series of buildings, millions of people live there, but they can only live there if we keep the rest of the planet healthy. And that's the critical message that we need to get across. For me to get to know a small piece of land, and this can be your local park, just to get to know it, to watch it different times of day, to feel a part of it, to feel like you matter in it, is really widening. We need the garden as a space that will give us a kind of portico, that will give us an entree to nature, and increasingly as people live, as they now do, in cities, more and more we become increasingly urban human beings. So we live without green space, we live without access to forests, 
rivers, fields, and streams. And so gardens are going to be increasingly our windows to that world. Gardens are going to become doors that open into the natural world and give people access, even in a city. part of negotiating with nature and will join me for part two.